I just want to welcome everyone to the next edition of Light Shed Live. We're really excited to have overtime today, Dan Porter uh, and Zach Weiner. I think what is sort of amazing is the transformation of this company in just a short period of time. I think we we probably interviewed you two, maybe even three years ago, pretty early in the, the creation of Overtime, Dan. And I think at the time we actually had the late David Stern. And it, it's hard not to think about Overtime without thinking of David because he was one of, I think he was your number one fan of what you were trying to build and sort of recognize the disruptive elements of what you were trying to do in, in reshaping sports media. But just thank you both for coming onto the show and and telling us a bit more about not just what, what what's happened over the last few years, but where this is going. Maybe just to level set everybody, um, because some people may not be familiar. When I first met you obviously was back in the draw something days when you had just sold your business to Zynga. But then you went in and you became an agent for a couple of years and you were working in the digital world. And then you got this idea to build a sports media brand. And when I first sort of heard this idea, your kind of concept for overtime was, hey, let's use a camera. You know, it sort of reminds me of like the early days of Snapchat. We've got this camera. Everyone's got a phone. Let's let everyone capture content and help us basically find all the great plays for um, high school sports. Let's not get into college and pro sports, but we'll enable people to be creators with a better camera experience, um, 30 seconds of recording or whatever it may be. And it's really morphed pretty dramatically into a content creation vehicle spanning all of the platforms. Maybe just help us understand how you got from where you were to where you are today, because it's been a pretty dramatic transformation. Yeah, I think that that was when we we spoke at your private conference that you yep. did. Um, and I remember you asked the guy from Fubo about churn. And my only takeaway from the whole conference was like, I never want to be in a business where people just ask me to be defensive about churn all day. So we've got to come up with some other type of business model because I'm not cut out for that. People um, do like so subscription yeah. models. So. <laughs> well, you could be like cable operators. They, they talk about how their churn is lowered by bundling, but then they don't actually disclose the churn rate itself. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't, I wasn't fit for that game, but, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think at that time, Zach and I recognized kind of the driving force of the business, which is, you know, 75 million people born between 96 and 2010, your kids rich, my kids. Um, and also just that every generation has a really different relationship with everything, with music, with with sports, with everything else like that. Um, and some are faster to change and some are slower to change. And in fact, sports in a way was slower to change because it never had really faced a huge disruptive factor before, you know, and we were looking at the first generation of athletes themselves that were essentially digital athletes. I mean, there isn't anybody in the NBA draft who didn't have some type of phone or smartphone when they're in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. Uh, and that, that has really changed the game. And we talk about player empowerment and everything else like that, the hunger of the fans to see the behind the scenes. And a lot of that was driven and I think our very initial insight was like, wow, that is a huge market of fans. Like they're not being kind of met or satisfied by content creators where they are. What do we know about them and how can we use the tools at our disposal? So what we kind of knew at the core was that, you know, these were fans who wanted to be creators themselves. These were fans who wanted to be part of a community, part of something bigger. These were not your kind of sit back on the couch, watch a 60 inch TV type of fans. Uh, and these were fans, honestly, who wanted to see people who were like them as well. 
Uh, and that was, you know, when I was at Endeavor as the head of digital, I kind of built the first talent agency for the creator generation. I mean, when I when I joined, we had no clients. And when I left, we had 250 of the biggest creators, YouTubers, you know, Instagram stars. And, and part of that secret was that young people wanted to see people like them right? They wanted to listen to Billie Eilish because she was like them. They wanted to watch YouTubers who were like them, Emma Chamberlain, other people like that. And, and that was happening less and less in sports. And so in trying to figure that out, while we were focused on the screen, like the front part of the camera, I had always been very focused on the back part of the camera. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, I came from the mobile game space. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the phone. Uh, and, and this idea that like, you know, if we could effectively harness the power of all those cameras, we could be in a lot of different places telling a lot of different stories. And it, it started out very kind of like, you know, Zach and his brother got some kids from their high school and they ran around New York City with some iPhones and shot some videos and like what was going to happen. And it was clear earlier on, like 2015, 2016, that there were pl there were basketball players in the kind of grassroots level who could get tens of thousands of views for a video. And not only had you never heard of them, they aren't even on any top 100 list. And so there was something bubbling underneath that. But it was also clear that kind of pure UGC uh, didn't really work. Like it's hard to capture a highlight of a sports moment. It's hard to stand in the right place. It's hard to do all of those things. So over the last three years, we kind of started at that point where we built our own custom camera technology. You have to work for us to get it or you have to be in our network of 7,000 filmers. It allows you to hit record after a play happens, immediately uploads it to the cloud, tags it, and we're able to publish it. And it did two things for us. One, it gave us a breadth of coverage. We could be in South Carolina with the Zion Williamson and we could be in Eastern Europe with a LaMelo ball within half an hour notice. But it also gave us the key to the internet, which was speed. We just had, we, we had what was invisible and were able to make it visible within seconds. And that's, that's kind of really how we broke through. But, but that became essentially like the tip of the sword because our goal was to meet the needs of our audience. And so if our audience said, this is great, we like these clips, but we want to see whole shows about these, these athletes, then we made whole shows about them. If they said, we want an app, we had an app. If they said, how come all the athletes get to wear overtime in the video and we don't get to wear overtime? Now we have a massive e-commerce business. So it's been this like continual evolution where like at the highest level, you can think about a traditional media or sports property. You launch something and then somebody goes, oh, you know what? We need an Instagram and we need Twitter to make sure we can promote it. And we almost like did the opposite. We started with the Instagram and Twitter, and then we've reversed engineered so that now we're at the point where we actually have, you know, a league and IP and everything else like that. So what, so when we, obviously when we were growing up, like ESPN, I guess the question is, why didn't ESPN do this? It seemed like a layup. I mean, in the early days of ESPN, we would see a lot of different type of interesting sports. Even now, I, I, I think I saw like, um, cornhole like college cornhole things maybe that was espn i don't know but like how did they miss this opportunity to kind of own this market um i'll give you my take and then zach can give you his take i mean look espn is filled with talented and, and very smart people and a very successful whole company obviously but you know, look, I mean, they have the most premium of sports out there, right? Like when you have Monday night football and you, you have these other things, I mean, those are big properties and that. You can walk and chew gum at the same time, it right? Does. 
but but I, I think the difference yeah. is, and this is not an. And this is UGC. Is that right. is that a big part of the reason why they're just not fit for doing UGC? It's not that. It's that. And and by the way, when I speak about ESPN here, I could be speaking about anybody, CBS, sure. Fox, you know. But they're the obvious one. <laughs> I, I mean, to turn our own Bleacher Report. I mean, yes, I, I think there's sure. a transformation in the way that that young people consume and think about sports that you just don't see if you're on the inside. And you've also, from a business perspective, over-indexed and spent a lot of money on the traditional thing. And by the way, you know, for me as a guy in my 50s, like the traditional thing wasn't broken. Like no ESPN fan is at home crying over Monday Night Football. It's great. They love it. It's an incredible product. But, you know, so when you have a satisfied group there, it becomes hard then to kind of peel away. And and I think the, the biggest example is that I think a lot of networks kind of woke up to what overtime was doing and assumed that overtime success is because high school basketball is popular now. And you you just treat high school basketball like you treat anything else. So let's take a game and let's put it on television. And then you look at our audience. They're not watching television. They're not watching three-hour games. They don't have pay television subscriptions. They're not looking for traditional announcers. They're not looking for any of those things. So if you extrapolate kind of the traditional thing, like, oh, it's just sports, they're just covering something different. And then you go in that direction rather than understanding like everything from the bottoms up, how it's covered, how it's talked about, all how it's put out there in the world, all those things are different. That That's just really different. And I, I you know, ultimately that's, that's the difference between all companies who do disruptive things. Why didn't the taxi industry start Uber? You know, it's like, you know what you know so well and it's kind of working for you that it, it you're able to leave that for, for other people to innovate in. You started out on Instagram. Can you walk us through the evolution from Instagram to other platforms to where you are today and what you're doing next? Yeah, Zach, you want to take that? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's always been important for us to be truly multi-platform and be gigantic wherever the young generation is, is probably hanging out. Um, you know, Instagram is huge for us for sure, but YouTube is where all of our kind of TV style programming lives. Snapchat, we're actually gigantic. It, we, may, we may do the most. Was it time. always that way though? I mean, did it evolve to YouTube or, or can you just um, walk through kind I, of I, how I it started? And... In a sense, it did evolve pretty quickly, but you know, when you're just doing short form content with our camera technology, you can't really have a presence on some of the longer form places. But yep. within a year, we were starting to do the episodic programming, which really opened up the door for more platforms. But I think honestly, TikTok is a really interesting example for us because I mean, we're the biggest sports account on TikTok. And that was a platform where we had a, we, we, there was no one else had a head start on us, right? TikTok is actually the only platform that's younger than Overtime itself. And I think that that's sort of like the, the proof in the pudding of like how big Overtime is and how much people love it. The fact that not only do we have the biggest account, we have all these other sub accounts that perform really well. And it just shows, I think, our institutional understanding of this generation. Did you succeed on TikTok? Oh, sorry, Brandon, go ahead. Please go ahead, Walt. Did, did you succeed on TikTok um, because it's the the viewership there is um, applies to the demographic of the content that you're serving them, or was it that you just understood better how to serve up good content to that customer base or that um, those those users of TikTok? Did, is, is that was that clear? No, it's clear, but I, I think the answer is wholeheartedly both, um, without question. Yeah, I, I would add to that. I owned a major sports network. 
I would take everything that I made on that network and I would put it on social platforms. But because we create all of our content from scratch to fit what each platform is, meaning it's always going to be a little different, um, that was a huge opportunity. We were willing to push the bounds. Yeah, in the beginning, it was Instagram. I remember I went and I met with Rich Antonella, the CEO of Complex, and he's like, Dan, you got to be on YouTube. YouTube is like TV. And I came back and I was like, let's string together our clips. I think our first YouTube clip was like 20 iPhone highlights strung together into a three-minute video. Um, but but you you learn what works for every platform and you become platform native and, and, and digital native. And, and you also are, are able to really expand the bounds of sports. And so by that, by that, I mean, I used to say that our audience like is ex as excited to see me nutmegging you with the soccer ball in Times Square as they are to see a goal by Messi or somebody on the court or off the court. And if you think about those as in a very compartmentalized way, you don't see the opportunity. But if you appreciate, I think what our audience appreciates, where all kind of boundaries are are blended in a certain way, you can wear $500 sneakers and a $10 thrift store t-shirt. You can also look at that in terms of sports content and you don't have to be literally tapping whistle to whistle and everything else doesn't matter. You can show everything and the audience is sophisticated enough to say this sports and I like to engage from all these different touch points. And I think if you follow the social channels of any major sports content producer, they look a lot like overtime does now. You have, you know, things that are not professional sports there. You have captions that look like we do. Um, and so then it becomes on us to then figure out, okay, so we kind of figured out what that was and showed that the audience mindset was really broad. What are we going to do next? And what are we going to do next? And then they're all kind of watching us down to the point that I see our captions literally reposted by major media companies. I see, a, we'll post a video and then literally it will be posted on, you know, some supposed large billion dollar competitors within an hour after we post it every single time. As you've built your presence on all of these platforms and as professional sports have too, how do you think that affects the willingness or the want of younger generations to watch full games and, and long form sports? Basically, Brandon's asking, are you the reason nobody's watching live sports? <laughs> it's not that nobody's watching. Is, is it Dan Porter's are, fault? Are, are you creating or social channels creating a problem for, for longer form sports content, for full game watching, which is really the financial underpinning of the entire professional sports ecosystem? Zach, you're young, so you, you should say what the young people like. <laughs> wow. Oh, you, you're, I mean... I, I am half Dan's age, uh, for, for the for the record. But still uh, old enough to have a beard, so <laughs> only because it makes me look a little older. <laughs> I mean, to be to be to be fair, I mean, I think a, a key part of your hiring strategy has been to hire young people, right? I mean, that's literally from day one. So, yeah, we we we, we do we do have a really young and, and digitally native team. Um, I think, look, I think that there's actually, I, I want to call out one thing, which is that the, there's a big difference between live sports in a three hour game and the idea of long form content, right? And, you know, if you look at the one day event that we ran, you know, almost two years ago, which was the inspiration for Overtime Elite, the league that we're launching, it, that was a problem. We're, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to the league for sure. For sure. But so, I mean, so that did 150 million video views. And for me, that had both short form and long form and there was no live, right? Like we, we have, we have, we have 20 minute videos on YouTube that did 10 million views. 
and people were spending consistent time with us. It just wasn't a live broadcast of a three-hour event. So I think I think there's an important distinction there. Whether you know social highlights in general are are they tearing down you know the the live rights value? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I buy that. I think there's so many other factors, as you guys know just just as well as us. Like. Even, even if there was never an NBA highlight posted to Instagram, would oh, NBA ratings be up? I would actually argue they'd actually be down further. I, I agree with you. I, the NBA has to lean into social channels, has to reach the younger demos. Otherwise, they'll just be vanished into thin air. Um, but at the same time, it reinforces a different behavior that's very different from their bread and butter and how they make money. But maybe that should get us back to how we make money on highlights themselves and what you're doing. And maybe if you could talk about your monetization on the different platforms. We had a guest two weeks ago, or actually two guests recently, that said that there's no better place to monetize than YouTube. So can you kind of take us through the different platforms and monetization on them? Yeah. And one, one thing before we hit that, that I want to say is that I, I think that there's this kind of like narrative, oh, young people have short attention spans and they're never going to watch X and Y. Um, and I, I don't know about your kids, Rich, but my kids watch Netflix shows. And so I always say they have- My short kids have a longer attention span than I yeah. do. I was going to say, I was gonna say and, there and, are old people like me who have a short attention span. And by the way, the, the average Twitch stream watch time is like 90 minutes. So I always say, yes, they have short attention spans for traditional content that doesn't speak to them or isn't formatted for their needs, but they actually have long attention spans for, for longer things. Uh, and I, they can play they can play Roblox for five hours. Yeah, so like and, it's, and look, I, I, I all the leagues understand that and they're creative in their ways and in the ways they're trying to show camera angles and other things like that. And, 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 and the NBA is very creative in the way they use summer league and the G league ignite. And so, you know, obviously all very savvy operators going to that. Um, and, and you see, especially outside of the United States, all of that changing, right? You have cricket, a four day game, and now you have hundred ball and 200 ball cricket. And I think, you know, baseball is going to struggle with that a lot. And, and what's going to happen if we make some changes in baseball that makes the younger audience happier, but now does every record have to have an asterisk after it? So it, it's actually really, it, it's pretty challenging. You've got the game dynamics. And I think where, where we'll ultimately be focused is as much in the kind of, you know, how it's called, how it's filmed, how the, how the fans are engaged um, and, and everything else like that. And I think over time, you will see relics disappear. I don't know if in five to 10 years, you're going to go to a pro sports game and see cheerleaders. Like there's nothing that feels more anachronistic to me than that as, as part of a professional sports game, especially, you know, because obviously female athletes are able to do incredible things and we don't necessarily need that type of representation, but all of that, it moves more slowly than digital does. And, and I can understand there are people who are invested in that. Um, so I'll, I'll take a part of the, I'll take the kind of e-commerce part of the revenue side, and then Zach can take the kind of media and brand side, um, so about a third of our, our revenues are e-commerce driven. Uh, we, we, from the beginning- Meaning, just to be clear, meaning merch. Meaning apparel. Merch is like, uh, is like a light shed t-shirt. 
Apparel is like 75 SKUs, like with various drops and everything else like that. So don't put me in that merch. Don't send me a mug and tell me that's my business. I'm in the apparel business. So uh, lifestyle. So I want some lifestyle apparel so I can wear on my next Light Shed Live is what I need from overtime. I, I got you. So okay. I, I think from us from the beginning, we realized that if we included, you know, sweatshirts, t-shirts, hoodies, socks, like everything that makes up an apparel brand minus the footwear um, in, in all of our videos that that it would have a special meaning for our audience. And if we were able to control manufacturing and distrib distribution of that, we'd have a big opportunity for the whole first year of overtime. Um, we, we had people wearing stuff and we never let anyone buy it. And so it was clear that if you wore a shirt that said overtime, you must have been somebody or you were in a show or you were on a video and people said, how do I buy this? How do I buy this? We were like, it's not for sale. Um, and then year two, we started to build out and, and let that be for sale. Um, and I think for us, it's, I, I call, I don't call it merch because it's, it's social commerce, it's visible, it's viable, and then it stands for something about overtime, but it stands for something about like almost like what we call got next. Like you wear this because you think you're next up. It has a symbol. It has all those things that brands do. So that's always going to be uh, an exciting part of our business. Yeah, and on the brand side, I mean, I'll touch on two aspects of it. One is, you know, if you think about even the initial part of, of this podcast where Dan talked about our value proposition in the early days, the same value proposition that we have to our audience and our community is the same value proposition that we have to brands. Like if you are a brand and you want to spend in sports as you should be doing, because it's an amazing passion point and you want to reach young people at scale, as, as you guys know, like it, it, it's hard, it's hard to do that right now. And over time, we obviously believe is by far the best place to do it, not just at scale, but with influence and with the engagement that we have. And the fact that I can walk down the street in an overtime shirt that Dan references and some some 22 year might be like yo shout out to overtime i love overtime and that and and we're able to translate that influence to brands and so that's why they spend money with us to, to your question brandon about sort of the, the mechanics of it um yeah we, we love working with the platforms i think that there's this myth that when you're on the platforms you're giving away all of your revenue uh but you're not and, and in fact actually most of our deals that you know that the, the pre-roll and in the advertising where you do split that's only a very small portion of what we're actually doing a lot of it is brand integrations uh and they want to be they want to be associated with the ip that we're creating and we get to keep 100 percent of that revenue and we built up a gigantic audience there so the model actually works really well for us and but in terms of platforms and whether it's direct or monetization or sponsorship integrations is youtube still at the top of the food chain for you in uh, terms of revenue or is I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say so i mean when when i would say probably north of 90 percent of the deals that we do are cross-platform no 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 one just wants to buy one platform they want to be associated with the ip and our ip lives across all those places it lives on TikTok. it lives on instagram it lives on snapchat it lives on youtube and so ultimately it comes down to, to kind of a percentage breakdown of where those views and engagements are happening. And it tends to actually be pretty well split amongst those places. Yeah, I so, would add, don't, don't, don't sleep on Snapchat. I mean, they've done incredible work about, uh, you know, building out their, their ad platform and about sharing revenues in, in, the, in the way that they do. Um, and so that, that, that's a really, really important for us as well. First of all, for anyone watching this live, 
uh, if you have questions, there's a Q&A box. Please suggest questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can over the last half hour of this interview. Uh, but I want to stop on Snapchat for a second, Dan, because I remember, and this is probably, I, I forget when hype school started, but I remember you basically hitting me within the first week of it launching going, pay attention to this. Something's going on, Rich. You got to look at what is going on with Snapchat Discover. We're blowing up. Something's happening. You know, I guess as you look at Snapchat, um, and I think you did the same thing when you were blowing up uh, on TikTok, um, but maybe walk us through what's going on on Snapchat. What are you seeing in terms of engagement? There was a long time that brands like yourself were complaining, hey, we're creating lots of content and we're making like literally zero. Now it feels like there's been a massive turn where brands and, and content partners like yourself are pretty excited about what you're building or about what you're creating. Yeah, I, I think we went through that evolution where kind of the V.9 or V1 of Snapchat was really kind of publishers and you were kind of essentially doing more visual stories about news. And I think that they smartly saw their platform almost as being like a cable operator with a lot of different channels there, um, curated, encouraged and supported people to create essentially like real vertical content shows, episodes. You watch stuff on Snapchat and it's like season three, episode 12. Um, and they're very native to the platform. And so, you know, we can see, you know, huge, huge engagement, tens of millions of people watching a show. And it's kind of crazy. Like if you actually comped those numbers um, to numbers of people watching a television show, it, it's really big. And as they built out the self-serve ad, pl ad platform, um, that became that became a huge opportunity. And so it's really, it's really diverse. I mean, we started with Hype School, which was kind of your traditional more clip show, um, what you would expect, fast moving, a lot of clips. But we we take our long form shows and we put put them on there. We work with Snapchat on a show about kind of young leaders and and racial justice on, on the platform. Um, and it's, it, it, again, it's, it's really diverse. You could, almost, you could look at it like your cable box, um, and, and, and technically and visually it, it's, it's highly sophisticated and, and we can, you know, we, we make money on there. Um, and, and they have a lot, we have a great relationship with them. And I think that they really, they really nailed what those shows look like. And, and obviously they moved into scripted and non-scripted both. Um, so it, it's very mature. And I'll say like my nieces and nephews tell me things in the news and I'm like, how do you know that that happened? And they're like, oh, I watched it on Snapchat. I saw the news there. YouTube being a, a second, most of, you know, most of what my, my son tells me about the stock market comes from YouTube videos that he watches. So we're already in a visual learning and information session, you know? So I think both those platforms vertically and horizontally have really nailed it. You said, can you check his email to see if he sent any anonymous emails to Rich Greenfield about some of those stocks that he's learning about on YouTube? Uh, I would I would try. The problem is that uh, when I get emails from my parents, I screenshot and text it to him <laughs> and say, would you please respond to that email from your grandparents? And they're like, check email? What's that? Uh, uh, sorry, Rich. I had it. I had no, it. no. <laughs> Brandon, all you. One of the verticals you got into um, was uh, video games. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to, to target games 
and how it fits with the broader overtime platform. Yeah. So, so my personal background, obviously I ran a gaming company for five years uh, and then I created the E-League, which was a partnership between Turner and IMG. Uh, I think in the beginning, like everybody used to say, are you going to do esports too? Are you going to do games too? And in the very beginning, like our value proposition was that we had, we had clips, highlights on the court, off the court that no one else had. Whereas in, in video games, everybody had access to those clips because they were being streamed. So there was no scarcity. You know, we didn't have any competitive advantage. You could hit a command line in Twitch and you could make a clip instantly. Um, and so uh, over time, you know, I, I would survey the audience and what we would learn was you have all these people who love sports and play sports, but they also play video games. And I think that, you know, another myth along with the short attention myth is that you've got a bunch of people who like sports and a bunch of people who like video games. But the reality is, is most of the young people like to do both. You know, I think, uh, you know, 70% of kids who play video games who are in the, our million plus followers also play sports. Uh, and so for us at that time, it became it became more about that. And I think with the rise of Fortnite and kind of very mass accessible games, as opposed to going deeper into more hardcore games, it became clear that everybody was doing this and it, it was part of our strategy. And along the way, you know, we started to develop our own talent. And so you had Megan and Larry and these people who were, who were associated with overtime, who you would watch and they would be your path in. And I think gaming you know, I always say that esports is great, but gaming as a, a content creation platform in North America is far bigger than esports. China esports is much bigger, but like when people talk about Ninja, they're talking about him as an entertainer, not him as the Michael Jordan of video games. And so when we got to that part and there were accessible games, being able to find talent aligned with kind of all of our platform for talent across over time. So let's go to the Q and A. Um, we have something from an anonymous attendee saying, curious how Overtime's relationship with athletes evolves over time as they move from amateur athletes to professional stars. For example, what does the relationship with Zion look like today? Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's funny. When we started the company and we started covering some of these high school stars, we weren't even thinking about how a couple of years down the line they'd actually be in the NBA. Uh, but, it, but it's been obviously cool to see just from like an emotional perspective. But yeah, with a lot of these athletes, uh, we still have really strong relationships. Um, and oftentimes, you know, there's actually more that we can do with them now because they can be compensated, right? And obviously, yeah. we're changing that on the high school side as well. Um, but, you know, it, n n now now we can actually partner with, thing, with them on things, whether, you know, we're talking actually to a bunch of athletes around kind of co-branded apparel lines or, or doing content series that we can sell to brands and now the athletes can see upside. So it's, it's, it's been really cool to see the athletes uh, kind of progress in their journeys and for us to be able to continue to support them and work with them. And it's cool to see, you know, athletes like Trey Young walk into the tunnel at, at State Farm Arena wearing his overtime sweatshirt and things like that. It's, yeah. it's really fun. When you think about overtime elite, it feels like this is your way of sort of cementing those relationships and, you know, taking, you know, I guess right now you have all these high school stars and then they go to college or they go to the professionals and you sort of lose at least part of the, the value chain. 
it would seem like overtime elite and maybe just explain to everyone exactly what you're doing in case they're not familiar with it, but just walk us through sort of that. And, and is that part of this Zion question of basically being able to capture more of the value chain of these stars? Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So I'll, I'll talk about it at a super high level and then we can go into details as you guys want, but you know, so overtime elite is a super league really for the, the top, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old basketball players globally. It's not just for the top domestic uh, athletes. Uh, and, you know, as part of the system, we're also really providing an academic accelerator that focuses on amazing basketball development, amazing education, financial literacy and all of that. And then for the first time ever in this country, compensation. So six figure salaries for every athlete and, you know, insurance benefits, all, all of those sorts of things. Um, to, to your question, Rich, um, I, I wouldn't actually say that that's really the impetus. And I wouldn't say that's really part of the design. You know, when, when, when I first had this concept and was telling, you know, a, a couple people about it, they were like, oh, you should take a percentage of their future earnings or, you know, you should be their agency of record. And uh, we, we have decided not to do any of that stuff. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's borderline predatory to try to take, you know, percent. And not that you were suggesting that specifically, but we want to make sure that, you know, they're set up as best as possible for a long MBA career to monetize on the court and off the court. And we obviously we value the relationships going forward. And I do think this will only continue to improve our relationships because we're providing so many resources for them long-term. Um, but really we think there's an immediate, amazing short-term opportunity um, around these athletes. I mean, you know, some of these athletes in, in high school have millions of followers already and are mega influential amongst a gigantic range of, of, of the population. And so for us, it's ultimately about creating an amazing media property right now that tons of people want to watch. Oh, I, I get that. I'm just stepping back and going, if you take 30 of the world's best athletes and let's just say I'm going to be arbitrarily say two thirds of them are from the U.S. If you take two thirds, so 20 athletes plus out of the U.S. collegiate system, and they're the 20 best. What does that sort of mean for NCAA college or, you know, NCAA basketball, March Madness? I mean, it'll obviously still go on, but it seems like it is a pretty big deal for sort of the legacy ecosystem. And, uh, you know, it, it just seems very disruptive, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, it, it is disruptive. And look, at the end of the day, it's, it's the NCAA that, at least as of right now, is not going to allow these athletes to participate. We, we, we would love for the athletes to be able to go through our program and then make the, again, we're all about optionality. So if they have the option to go play in the NCAA or go to the G League night, or maybe in a couple of years, go straight to the NBA if they change their rules, yeah. that, 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 that would be great. For, for, for the time being, they're not going to be allowed to, which is why we have a college scholarship put away, why, you know, they can stay with us for a post-grad year if they want all of that. Um, look, will it affect college basketball? To, to some degree, yes. I mean, inevitably, um, but I also don't think taking 20 athletes out of an ecosystem of tens of thousands of athletes and an ecosystem of fans that have gone to these schools uh, and, and are supporting. And, you know, I mean, as you know, the NCAA and, and March Madness is a multi-billion dollar property. I, I don't think removing a few athletes is going to, sorry, that. <laughs> sorry about Timber. That. <laughs> I, the I don't hazards think, of Zoom. We're doing, I know we're also doing this live. So it is I what it is. I think that was the NBA's age restrictions collapsing. <laughs> <laughs> that was well done, Brandon. <laughs> Very nice. Um, really well yeah, well, it, it'll affect the ecosystem, but I, I, I don't see, I don't see it crumbling. I see it hopefully changing for the better. Hopefully we see some rule changes that have been talked about for a long time. Yeah. I mean, look, the, any of these entities 
I mean, they can change the rules whatever they want. They can decide the only way you can be eligible to play in the NCAA is if you eat Captain Crunch for breakfast. Like, they're all just arbitrary rules and they can change at any time. And I think that people inside and outside the system, rather than trying to force them to change, if they just start to go about their business, you know, folks adapt. But I think to Zach's point, like, if you went to a certain school, you're going to love that school and cheer for that school, whether they have, you know, X player or Y player. I think it's really different than the pros, which is a very player driven league. And you might even follow a player to another team, or you might see somebody you love on overtime who now got drafted by a team that's not the city you grew up in. And and yet you want to follow and watch. And so when you think about sort of what the repercussions will be, I mean, are you going to sell media rights for this? Like what, what you like walk us through, like the, you know, what are the steps of like getting this launched? When do we see it? What do, how do I watch it, et cetera? Yeah, we will, we will sell media rights for this. This is a, you know, uh, we're developing media rights that we, we will, you know, sell or sell or work directly with our fans. Uh, we'll have opportunities for licensing. I mean, the way that we're able to essentially pay players, you know, invest a significant amount of money in their training, in their education is by, you know, cutting them in on the business and doing that. We'll launch in September, 2021. Uh, I, I don't, we're not going to sell media rights on day one because we want to make sure just like in the history of overtime that we continue to innovate and figure out what the perfect product is for our audience. But it definitely unlocks fans ability to be able to watch licensing to be able to buy a jersey with their favorite you know player on it i mean they they talk about all the time every every player you love in high school and college can't make a penny from a jersey with their name on it and we're able to work with them and unlock that and some of these players want to build their own brands too you know you talk to the young 18 year old players 17 year old players and they talk about business they talk about brand building and they talk about all these other things i didn't know what brand building when i was 18 years old um and so we have a lot of really exciting partnerships and those are possible because of social media and because of the, just the massive transformation in the way that fans interact with athletes. Okay. So we've gotten a couple of questions in the chat as well. And the, they're both from Jerry, um, a follow-up on topics we've already hit, um, but um, maybe uh, a little more info from you guys. The first one is overtime was built on basketball. How much of your content is currently comprised of sports outside of basketball? Selfish question. Does a long tail sport like track and field have any traction or potential? Uh, I'll take that one. So uh, about a third of our content is football, gaming, um, women's basketball, lifestyle, some soccer. Uh, at this point, we have not focused on long tail um, content for, for a couple reasons. One is that we are a mass audience aggregation play. I mean, we have almost 50 million followers. Overtime has more followers than any U.S. sports team does. Um, and we've been around for four years and spent zero dollars on marketing. So I, I don't I don't necessarily feel that longer tail sports are going to contribute to that. But the other thing is that 
there's a psychological component to overtime, which I experience as a fan, as somebody who's 20 can experience as a fan, which is you want to watch somebody's journey. You want to see them. You want to discover them. You want to see where they end up. It's it's not unlike finding somebody on SoundCloud or YouTube, and then all of a sudden they're the biggest recording artist in the world. And for the longer tail sports, there aren't professional leagues. There are the Olympics, but that that journey is a lot. There's not there's not an end game. If you know, if you play a lot of those sports, you graduate, you know, and and, and then you go work in the real world. And so, uh, as as opposed to get to play in the real world. And so, so you know, we really focus on that place where you can see that journey continue continue to go and where there's a big audience segment and, and a really developed ecosystem because that gives us the greatest leverage. Okay, Jerry's second question. You mentioned the value of Snapchat and YouTube to drive overtime engagement and reach. Are they the top two platforms for driving scale for overtime? And where does Twitter fit into this? Um, I, I The way that I think about it is, it's not, it's not about a leaderboard. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. It's not about a leaderboard or a hierarchy. You have to understand what every platform is good for, right? And Twitter, and it's kind of as a communications platform, breaking news, interacting with pro athletes, you know, TikTok, bringing people in with kind of non-sports platform. And so instead of thinking about it like a vertical list, you think about it like a constellation of stars and each one has a different value proposition, the thing that they're really good at. And then if you know how to put all those together, you, you've got you've got something macro. So they're all incredibly important. There wouldn't be overtime without Twitter. But, I, you know, I think about overtime because we can get retweeted or liked by a pro athlete and that can expand. And that's really different because liking and retweeting doesn't exist on Snapchat. So it's really about a strategic relationship and understanding the, the strengths the absolute strengths of each platform rather than like, you're my number one, you're no, they're all my number one. They're all awesome at the things that they do. So when, when you think about sort of, you know, the evolution of the, the overtime brand, what do you want it to mean? Because obviously you've got a whole host of content, you know, brands, like what is like the, what do you see overtime meaning to consumers over time? Yeah, I mean, I'll touch on part of it. And then Dan, feel free to jump in. I think that obviously it's sports, but it's also tangential to sports, right? It's like sports at the center, but we do stuff. We've done content with hip hop artists and no one has said, oh my God, why is this on overtime? So it's sports and culture a little bit more broadly. And then I think the second key component is, is something that this generation feels like they're a part of. Um, you know, I, I hear people all the time say overtime, it sounds like my friend. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like I'm just texting with a friend and, and we, you know, we, we, we communicate by individual DM with thousands of fans every single day. Um, you know, and I don't think a lot of brands are doing that. And honestly, it wouldn't be that organic for a lot of brands to do that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's sports centered, uh, but, but a little bit wider than that. And it's really community and feeling like you're part of something. Yeah. I, I, I would add to that, you know, if, if you think about our friends as older people, you know, there are people who are still obsessed with Fish or Pearl Jam. And, and those are bands that are different, right? Like Pearl Jam doesn't even have a record label, right? And they have a massive community and they can sell out Madison Square Garden in one second. And it's because they've really invested in the community. And that's really different than having a hit song on the, on the radio. And, you know, I started out years ago in the music industry. So I think about that for us. I think about, you know, Brands that have come before us that talk about the youth 
and like how big they are and get billion dollar valuations and everything else like that. But nobody walks around wearing their t-shirt. Nobody feels like they're a part of it. You know, we have five full-time people who do nothing but respond to hundreds of thousands of direct messages from our fans. We try to empower our fans to do the things that music fans do. Like Pearl Jam doesn't tell you a show. Your Pearl Jam friend tells you that there's a show and you go with that friend and you meet up with that friend. And I think that even though those things don't always fit on like a slide deck or on an analyst report or an investor report or anything else like that, understanding that that's our goal and making sure that everyone who works for us understands that that's our goal. Like you don't get to create community unless your community owns you, not vice versa. And so I think that that's how we think about the brand long term. So if you wanted us to, or the viewers on this um, event, Light Shed Live, to truly understand that community and that brand, um, what what content should we actually look at to really understand the overtime brand? I would say phone a young person, but Zach, you can answer if you want. Is well, that yeah. Zach's, you're letting Zach answer because he's half your age? Are we going back to that? Well, it's fun. It's funny, Walter. Your question. Your question kind of had a twist at the end. I, I didn't. I wouldn't think that you were going to say what content should they watch. I thought you were going to say what. What should they do? How should they understand it? And I do think to Dan's point, it's like if you talk to someone in this demographic and you say, "Hey, have you ever heard of Overtime?" You'll see the way that their eyes light up, and they're like, mm -hmm. "Oh, yeah, of course. Like I love Overtime. Like I watch their content." And then they'll say either on Snapchat or on TikTok or YouTube, and you'll get to see like it's a various experience for a lot of different people. Um, I would say. Um, you know, I think one of the really good places to, to see what we stand for is to look up our content from the overtime takeover. Um, even though that, that's over 18 months ago and we're a lot bigger now, uh, I think it, it gives you a sense of the type of storytelling we do for these athletes. You'll see actual fans that are live there, like, and their eyes light up as they see these amazing athletes. You'll see how so many of them in the, in the crowd, they came wearing overtime t-shirts. So there's no one piece of content that perfectly captures it. But I think looking at some of the overtime takeover content on, on YouTube is probably most accessible is a really good way to think about it. And, and I want to add to that. In the very beginning, we talked about how we started with kind of iPhone cameras and stuff like that. I, I like to say probably in the first 24 months of overtime existence, there were probably 100,000 people who saw someone from overtime in their high school gym, right? And so when you talk about bottoms up, grassroots, building a brand in that way, that's really different than like 15 guys quit some media company and put some stuff up on a screen and try to get people to care about it. Like that is really, it is like, you know, shaking hands, hearts and minds, like wearing that shirt in the gym, seeing someone there, being at tournaments. Um, and and that that's always going to be the core of, of what we, of what we do, because all of our, you know, all of our, hopefully our love and our fandom is going to be bottoms up and it's going to be grassroots driven. Can I, before we go to the next question, I, I just, as it occurs to me, like, this seems like, like a barstool type thing. Like why, why is barstool? Like going back to my first question, I was kind of going after why didn't ESPN do it? Now it occurs to me more of like barstool tries to really connect with their fans. They have, you know, they hire this guy um, troops that they're, he does videos of him watching Arsenal matches. Like, Culturally, that would seem to fit with them. Why have they not done this? Um, you know, what do you think the challenges would be for them to get into this space? Um, I, I would never take the risk of saying anything about Barstool in a public scenario, um, <laughs> other than that they've they're they're really the goal for developing talent. I'd say, like you know, when I went to your thing. Rich, it was the first time I ever saw Erica speak, and she said, like at the core, like we're a comedy platform. 
you know, and and I think that what they identified was a fan who felt disenfranchised from the system, who felt like it wasn't speaking to them. Dave was a really good embodiment of that, and they leaned into that psychology in, in a in a in a way that really worked, and in a way that tapped into something. Like if there weren't people who didn't care about that or thought like that, we just we're just different, and that's not better or worse. Ours is more like the younger athlete who says like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to the NBA. I'm going to be famous. And then all of a sudden they get to be 20 or 21 and they realize maybe they aren't, but they want to go on the next journey with the next person. There are a lot of kind of psychologies of sports fans out there and their companies like Barstool or companies like us who hone in on different parts of those kind of psychologies and, and customize for them. We would be te- we would be terrible at trying to reach their fans. And I, I don't think that they would be as effective as we are at trying to reach our fans. But the mass audience of that, because there's whatever, 190 million sports fans in the United States alone, the, the, the total addressable market for their product and for our product equally is, is huge. It, it's it's just different. And you could layer in traditional sports networks in there in which they're reaching the person who's like traditionally grew up watching television and sitting on the couch. So you could aggregate all of those and you're still in the tens of millions for, for each player. I wanted to pivot just because Roblox is on everyone's mind this week with the direct listing. Do you think over time, over time, <laughs> has um, a place on interactive media platforms like a Roblox or a Fortnite or a Minecraft, um, whether it's through putting video into those platforms or in any other way? I, I do. I think that, you know, as you well know, the difference between sports and those platforms is there's no publishers in sports. I can do whatever I want with basketball. Uh, nobody's going to issue me a takedown notice for shooting a ball through a hoop. Um, but, but, but I do, I, I do think so. And, you know, I, I think in a way what's been so strong about overtime is that our fans want to see themselves on overtime. You know, they're people who take our watermark and put it on their own videos. Right. And so that, that's the same as like, uh, you know, that's a small version of an incredible creator economy that a Roblox creates or otherwise. So I, I absolutely think there's a, a, a ton of opportunity there. And I think ultimately it kind of goes back to my esports point, which was that our audience isn't like, well, there's sports and there's video games. There's just like stuff that I do and it's all cool. Or places I hang out, yeah, right? It, because it, we're thinking about those as distribution platforms for not just interactive experiences, but media in general. Right. I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't sleep on discord in that. Right. Like if you yeah. look at top shot, like they push you to the discord. Right. And, and that wouldn't have happened three, four five years ago. And so if you're going to give people a place to congregate and be social, whether that's the comments of Instagram, whether it's discord or whatever, you know, our own app, we're, we're thinking about how to do things like that. Um, I, I think that that sports fans are going to take advantage of that. When's your first have- NFT coming? Since, uh, you, since you brought it up, <laughs> uh, it it is hopefully coming shortly. I've been, you know, I've been I've been thinking about it twenty four seven. It's going to be a, a limited edition of of Zach's high school highlights from Stuyvesant, uh-huh. um, one of five hundred uh, classic Stuyvesant Hunter games. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity there. And I think we're, uh, we start. We'll start with something that is hopefully pretty accessible. 
Um, and you'll see. I mean, like- think about. I mean, I think about like imagine if there was a Zion High School <laughs> NFT, right? Like, what would that be worth today? If you just think about like what could have been done, and now if you get players of that quality, that you know is the overtime exclusive highlight, just like the NBA exclusive highlight. If you can own that market, it could just be absolutely massive for you as these players get get popular in professional leagues. It sounds amazing when you say it, Rich. So I agree with you. Okay. Uh, well, but yes, you know. we're we're, we're obviously we're obviously thinking about that, and obviously some of the fun of overtime and the fun of NFTs is trying to figure out who's going to end up where, and so giving people different ways to experience that. So most of the companies that we have on that I put into the digital media category generally talk about sort of the nirvana is how do I get a TV show or how do I get a movie? And it's all about sort of getting to sort of quote unquote traditional media because that's where the money is. I think what makes what you're doing so interesting is that doesn't appear to be your goal. It may happen, but that certainly isn't the core of your strategy. It's really about building a digital native business and monetizing a digital native business, obviously um, apparel, I'm not going to say March, but apparel, but like there's ways that go beyond advertising dollars um, and obviously now the league, it just seems like you're thinking about it very differently in terms of digital media than everybody else thinks about digital media. Because everyone else is just, how do we get from digital media up to that TV show series on Netflix or that movie, et cetera? Right. Because those companies are run by old people. They're not run by Zach Weiner. No, I mean, like, I, you know, I just, I, again, I even think about like, you, you see how many people like... There's a BuzzFeed series on Netflix. Like, you know, you just see kind of time and time again, everyone trying to going back to that age old model of like, let's go up to a platform that really monetizes rather than rethink how do you create a business? Obviously, Barstool connected to Penn and that's their monetization juggernaut. You're looking at building overtime elite. It just it seems like sort of there's been too much reliance, almost a crutch of, of doing things the way they've been done versus rethinking these businesses. I mean, to me whether it's the NFT discussion we you know you just touched on or even thinking about overtime elite like who knows where this goes but it, this seems like it's highly disruptive and that media rights could have I mean we saw the NHL numbers and despite collapsing viewership uh, and media industry struggling rights costs keep going up and up and up that would seem great for what overtime's kind of trying to create yeah I, I would say some of that is a little bit of pattern recognition from when I worked on the agency side. And the idea was that all these people were big on YouTube, so let's get them a TV show. And then they would get TV shows and the audience wouldn't necessarily cross over. The audience wasn't like, oh, I'm so underserved watching them on YouTube. Thank God they're on television. So now I can watch them do something else because everything about it was different, right? The cadence is different. Like there's no time constraints. You can make a three minute video. You can make an hour video. Like they don't have to be 22 minutes. And it became clear that that for a lot of the creators, television wasn't really their end goal either. They're like, I love what I do. Like, let's talk about how I make money doing what I do. Live touring, selling merch, doing other things like that, brand integrations, rather than assuming that like, you know, television is the parent and digital is the child and the child always has to grow up into the parent. So it's it's a good opportunity and in a lot of ways, but I don't think that our audience has never sent me a personal DM and being like, Dan, I love overtime, but if you were on television, I would really love you, you know? And so I think for us, the bigger business challenge um, and opportunity is like, how do we take advantage of what we're good at and assuming that we have to turn into something else? All right, let's finish up on maybe tell us what was your most watched 
um, clip. I wouldn't even know how to answer that or ask that because I guess you have so many different platforms. I guess you can tell us which platform the most one. And then also, like, who's the next Zion? Is Bronny James like crushing it right now in terms of of views, or is there someone else out there that that is uh, that's kind of bubbled up to the top? Um, I actually don't know the answer to the first one. Uh, <laughs> we don't have like a ranking. Well, if you were to guess, and which well, platform I, I, I would it be? Part, on? Of, part of reason Zach says that is like it was really annoying in the early days. People are like. Sports media company makes viral clips. Viral clips mean like you have 10 shitty clips and then one clip that's really big. And most of our stuff just does well because of how it's curated. So we're, we really have uh, tried to avoid being in a, a viral business, which is why we don't talk about that one clip that does a ton. We were talk- who was it we were talking about, Rich? Was it was it Vaynerchuk where, where he basically, the way they, they use TikTok, they, or maybe who was it? They said they send them in and if it doesn't work, and they don't see they engagement. Pull it they down. Pull it out. So they're like constantly reiterating to see what's going to be viral. Your point is, by, like, by the way, so does so does every single young person who posts anything anywhere does the same exact. Fair. You'll get ten likes in thirty seconds. You delete that post. So, uh, but you should answer Zach. Zach's the king of grassroots basketball. So I'm gonna let him answer. <laughs> um, look, I mean, it, it's honestly amazing the trend that we've seen. I mean, Zion didn't reach a million followers, so he was a senior in high school, and people look at him as like this poster child. Like we're gonna wait another twenty years for someone like him. And I'll take an athlete like Mikey Williams. I mean, he's a sophomore in high school. He's not, I mean, Bronny is potentially a unique case. I mean, he's the son of a a LeBron, obviously, but Mikey is this random athlete. I mean, amazing athlete, but you know, that's living in in North Carolina. He has almost 3 million followers. He's a sophomore in high school. We, We have this amazing show around him called Fear Nothing, but like, he, 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 to me, kind of epitomizes this, this next generation uh, fame and influence. And, you know, he's, he's also just a, a really great kid. We, we know him personally, so I like to shout him out, too. Yeah, and I Definitely think when you, look at, when you look at some of the athletes like Mikey, like, they're great athletes. They're swaggy off the court, right? Like, they are influencers and athletes at the same time. Um, and I think we really haven't seen that before. We've talked about, I remember getting Sports Illustrated and reading the faces in the crowd, like in the back about like some person who broke a swimming record or whatever. But I didn't have any sense of who that person was, what kicks they wore, you know, what they were like hanging out with their friends. And that that becomes part of the whole brand and the portfolio now in a way it really never has. Okay, Dan, Zach. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Light Shed Live. And we look we'll forward to our addresses for uh, some uh, swag. No, no, no. Yeah. Apparel. What no, no. Apparel. apparel. No, no. Sorry. Apparel. And, and we'll, that was and we'll so get demeaning. Our, no, no, no. For and some we're going to get our, none for you, get our bank. Yes, Rich. Some for you now. But we are <sighs> going to get our bank accounts ready for those big overtime NFTs. So we're, we'll be waiting. So thank you guys for everything. Really appreciate it. Thanks thank for having you. Us. Too. Peace. Take care.